This afternoon is taken from Timothy. We'll be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 6, the verses 3 to 10. Here the Apostle has just finished giving Timothy encouragement and he has given instruction for how to run the church, how to uh, encourage people within the church, how to guide them. And he concludes that section by saying, teach and urge these things. And we come to our passage here, 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 to 10. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And here we come to a verse that we'll be focusing on through the course of this sermon. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Our second reading for this afternoon is taken from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is the first Gospel in the New Testament. We'll be reading from Matthew chapter 6 from the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll be reading the verses 19 to 21. Here our Lord Jesus Christ says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light in you is darkness, how great that darkness No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So again, here we'll be focusing on the verses 19 to 21. So far, the word of God. This afternoon, we'll be working through the final commandment the final of the Ten Commandments, 
And you'll be able to find a summary of that in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 44. So we'll be working with that. You'll be able to find that on page 558 of your Book of Praise. What does the Tenth Commandment require of us? That not even the slightest thought or desire, contrary to any of God's commandments, should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. If in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly? First, so that throughout our life we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature, and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we, re- we reach the goal of perfection. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, The Christmas season is here. Throughout this season, we have once again been bombarded by advertisements. Get this better gadget. Get that better toy. Your life is incomplete, and this thing that you get, this will buy you satisfaction. There is a whole advertising industry that grows off of Christmas. And this whole industry is driven by getting someone to set their desire on something. They see it on TV, they hear it on the radio. Getting them to set their desire on it, and then take steps to acquire it. You are shown something that's beautiful and new. You're told that now having seen it, your life won't be the same without it. You can't settle for less. You can't settle for what you currently have. Because that is settling. And it's not enough to settle in life. Contentment is not enough. You always need more. Interestingly enough, last Christmas, the Christmas season of 2016, was labeled by the Daily Mail and the BBC as the Christmas of discontent. I'm not sure what this Christmas will be labeled as yet. We'll have to see what the, mail, what, what the uh, news has to say about that. But in this, this past Christmas, pilots, postal workers, and airport staff had all threatened to strike. Train drivers were striking as well. One specialist at the University of Sussex commented, we've not seen this much strike action since the mid-1980s. All of them were asking for more. What they had was not enough. Now, was it legitimate? I haven't done enough research into it to figure out whether or not that's the case. But it does fit in with the times, doesn't it? 
the theme of our consumer-oriented generation. We always want more. More, more, more. Don't settle for your boat. Don't settle for your paycheck. Don't settle for your wife. Don't settle for your life. Don't settle. But what does the opposite of not settling look like? Is it to settle? Do we simply sit back and say, well, these are the cards that I've been dealt. I guess I'll put up with them. Brothers and sisters, we'll examine this in the following theme and points. Through the Tenth Commandment, God calls us to find our contentment in Christ. And we'll see, first of all, contentment lost in covetousness and then gained in Christ. Beloved congregation, are you content? Are you happy with the situation you're in, with the things that you have? I think that everyone would agree that contentment is a good thing. When you're able to sit back after a holiday dinner, see your family smiling and joking around the table, and you're able to think to yourself how much the Lord has blessed you, it can be easy to be content. But when things get tough, it gets a little more difficult. We read the words, godliness with contentment is great gain. 1 Timothy 6 verse 6. And we think to ourselves, how can it be of great gain to be content the way things are right now? It's at this point that it may be helpful to look into exactly what we understand by contentment. And to contrast this with what we read in the 10th commandment. We can do this looking at what the Apostle Paul says in this particular verse. Godliness with contentment is great gain. By explaining godliness in this way, many of our modern day forms of Christianity are ruled out. Earlier this year, there was an article published by, uh, that was published about the Christians who are supporting the President of the United States, Donald Trump as they had much influence on him during his time as a business owner prior to his rise to the presidency, they are now all being shot to the foreground. But the gospel that they are preaching is no gospel at all. Why? Because the gospel that they're preaching in is focused around this world, around materialism, around acquiring money and power. The little that they did speak about sin, they spoke about it as mistakes and not as something that we need salvation from. So when we read here that Paul speaks about godliness with contentment, it flies in the face of the prosperity gospel. This gospel that Paul is preaching, this gospel that he's teaching to Timothy and to all of the churches around, is not a gospel that's focused on acquisition and avarice. It's not a gospel that's focused on piling up your money, on building up huge structures, on creating your own empire of wealth. It's a gospel focused on Christ and finding our contentment in Him. Next, it's important to note that it's godliness with contentment that's spoken of here in 1 Timothy 6. It's not just godliness with contentment, but it's godliness with contentment. 
Paul himself is showing that his opponent's view, the ones he was writing against at this point in time, that his opponent's view of godliness needs to change. His opponents were trying to, produce, to pursue a godliness without contentment. They were constantly on the move, constantly searching for more opportunities to increase their wealth, to increase their goods. But Paul speaks out against that. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, then we ought to be content. It's godliness that allows you to have this proper perspective on life. Godliness lets you see that the things of this earth are fleeting. One moment you're there, the next moment you're gone. Your life is like the grass that grows up for a little while and disappears. And the same thing happens with your possessions. You spend your time and your effort pursuing more and more, but in the big scheme of things, you're just pursuing a vapor in the wind. Godliness instead encourages us not to focus on acquiring many things here, but on storing up treasures in heaven. Jesus himself highlighted this in Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And it's not just for philosophical reasons that Christ mentions this. He mentions this for very practical reasons as well. God has wired us to find contentment in none other than Him through Christ. C.S. Lewis talks about this in the, in the idea of having a God-shaped hole in your lives. Having a God-shaped hole in your lives. God has wired us to find contentment in none other than Him. And when we start looking elsewhere, when we start coveting that which belongs to others, start coveting that which is just out of our reach, then we lose sight of what is truly important. What happens then? What happens when we even for a moment cease fixing our eyes on Jesus and start to fix it on worldly things instead? Then that void within us, which can only be filled with God, it begins to cry out to be filled. You cannot be satisfied with whatever is in front of you because that void is a bottomless pit. Each time you say, just a little bit more, just a bit more money, a bit bigger of a snowmobile, a bit fancier of a truck, but you're making a grave, grave mistake. For as one theologian said, if you're not content with what you had, you would not be satisfied if it were doubled. And then contentment no longer means to be satisfied. In that case, contentment means to settle. And settling? Settling is not for me. It's with this attitude that people begin to covet. In talking about coveting, the Bible uses a number of different terms. There are three that stand out in, the, in particular. Two in the Old Testament and one in the New. The first speaks about the desire for a neighbor's possessions. And this is the word chamat. 
This is not just thinking that would be nice to have. Instead, it's setting your desire on something with a purpose. Once you have set your desire on something, you are out to get it. Steps are taken to see if you can acquire whatever it is that's not yours yet. There are several examples of this in Scripture. One of the most vivid of them can be found in the Joshua account of the sin of Achan. Joshua 7 verse 21. You kids might be pretty familiar with this one. Achan, he was raiding and the entire contents of the city that he was involved with attacking with the people of Israel, the entire contents of the city was meant to be devoted to the Lord. But Achan saw some beautiful things when he was there. A cloak from Shinar, silver, gold. He couldn't keep his hands off of it. He set his desire on them, and then immediately he put a plan into place to take them. Thinking that no one would notice the difference, he hid them, and then he went back home, and then he dug a hole under his tent, and he hid the contents of all of that under the hole in his tent to be pulled out at the later date when people had long forgotten about this. Kids, have you ever experienced this kind of a desire? You saw something, and it struck you so much that even though it belonged to someone else, you just had to get your hands on it. You just couldn't keep your hands off of it. Maybe it was cookie dough or a sibling's toy. And you just couldn't help yourself. You set your desire on it and then you took it. As we can see, coveting in this sense of the word is directly connected to taking something. Coveting in this sense of the word is directly connected to taking something. There's no difference between desiring and plotting to take. With this word, coveting is not just a matter of the heart. It's desire that's directly played out into action. You're immediately doing it. But it's not just coveting which results in action that's condemned by God. God looks deeper. He looks to the heart. The evidence for this can be found in another word for coveting, awa. This is another word that can be found in the Old Testament. This particular word can be found in Proverbs 21, verse 26. The righteous man who gives generously is contrasted contrasted against the man who is described as coveting all day long. Now this man has not taken anything. But the word that's used here speaks of a selfish desire that's found in his heart. That suddenly hits a lot closer to home for the rest of us, doesn't it? We don't immediately act on our thoughts. Especially as adults, we've learned that there's consequences to being caught with our hands in the cookie jar. There are consequences to acting on our fantasies. Indulging them to the point of doing what we know we probably shouldn't. But simply the fact that we've learned to check 
our desires doesn't mean a whole lot. Simply suppressing the desires is not fulfilling the requirements that God has for us. Because God isn't satisfied with an outward obedience. You can do and you can act all you will, but if your heart isn't in it, it means nothing. Parents, think about your kids for a moment. You've learned to read them pretty well. Can you tell the difference between your kid obeying out of a joyful desire to be helpful for you and simply obeying because they fear the consequences? I bet you can. Can you tell the difference between your son cleaning the bathroom or your daughter sweeping the floor because they see you're too tired to do it yourself and they want to help you because they love you and seeing them clean because that's what they've been told to do and they don't want to get in trouble? How much more can your heavenly Father tell if you only obey because you fear the consequences of your desire becoming public? And how much more can he tell that you do not act because you hate all sin and delight in all righteousness, but simply because you don't want to get caught out in the rain? No, the Lord knows all. He knows when we're only obeying out of rote, out of custom, out of tradition. He knows this. And he wants the heart. This is where catechism comes to the fore. You may find it interesting at this point, if if you've been glancing through the catechism over the last few minutes, you may find it interesting to know that the catechism seems not to touch on the question of coveting at all. And yet, the very fact that it speaks about the heart shows that it has grasped the basic thrust of not just this commandment, but all of the commandments. The tenth commandment, by its very nature being a commandment that deals explicitly with the heart, as opposed to outward actions, shows that God Himself wants the heart of His people. He demands that they yearn to follow Him above all, that they abandon all thought of disobedience, the slightest thought or desire, that they should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. God wants the heart. This is where we reach the third word for coveting that we'll discuss today. One found in the New Testament, and this one is epithumia. Epithumia is Greek. The other two were Hebrew. Epithumia is unique among the words that we looked at today in that it does not necessarily mean something bad in and of itself. This word simply refers to an intense desire. The intense desire itself is not wrong. The question is, which direction is this intense desire pointed in? And it is this word that shows up in our 1 Timothy 6 passage today. We read in 1 Timothy 6 verse 9, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many sinful and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Those who desire to be rich. Those who crave riches. Those who have an intense desire for them plunge themselves into ruin. 
Paul continues, It is through this craving that many have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's the wretchedness that awaits those whose focus is storing up for themselves treasures on earth. They lose perspective. They make excuses. They make one concession after another until they slip off the narrow and winding road and onto the broad and straight that leads to destruction. And at the end of the day, they not only do not have their treasure in heaven, but the treasure on earth that they craved so much is lost as well. They pass away, leaving their wealth for the next person to enjoy. Their precious clothes destroyed by moths. Their precious metals destroyed, rusted, corroded. And their eternal soul lost. So you can hear the pain in Paul's voice when he cries out, We brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Oh foolish person, he seems to be saying. Why do you have such a short-sighted view? Why do you settle for the pursuit of such paltry pleasures and nagging discontent when true contentment in this life and indescribable eternal riches in the next can be yours? Perhaps now you might be thinking to yourself, how then can I find this contentment? This sounds wonderful and all, but look at this commandment. Look at the charge that you find there. And let's look at it once more, brothers and sisters. In this summary that we find here in Lord's Day 44, we read that not even the slightest thought or desire, contrary to any of God's commandments, should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. That's a lot of alls. A lot of absolutes. Does that not seem terrible? How frightening this can be. Yes, you may say, I understand that God wants the heart, but is it not a little much to ask that not even the slightest thought contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise? Isn't it hopeless to suggest that this epithumia that we show, this intense desire should be directed away from objects to be coveted and directed towards God? How in the world am I ever going to be able to manage this? Even the catechism points out our shortcomings. We read here. It says, nobody can keep these commandments perfectly, much less this last one. Even the holiest have only a small beginning of obedience. Is our situation not hopeless now then? Ah, But then, brothers and sisters, we lose sight of where we find this Lord's Day in the catechism. And we lose sight of the fact that what God commands, God also provides. And God has provided all that he required from us 2,000 years ago on the lonely cross of Golgotha. That was the reason that Christ came into the world. That was the reason for Christmas. That was the reason he came in the flesh. 
for Christ died there for us. And now he lives and reigns over us. This submission of the heart that's required of us, that we're unable to fulfill, has already been offered to God on our behalf. We've seen how great our sins and misery are. We've seen the desperate state of our affairs, yes. But we've also seen how we're delivered from our sins and misery. And so the terror that would otherwise stalk us when we see these great requirements of God no longer does. Certainly by this command and by all of them, we become more and more aware of our sinful nature. That's one of the reasons that we read the Ten Commandments Sunday after Sunday after Sunday in the morning service. One of the reasons that we read it, it's, it's like a mirror that we set up in our lives and we look into this mirror and we see how we fall short. We see a true reflection of what we are. But this gives us all the more reason to turn to Christ. And it gives us the incentive to seek Him, seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness that can be found in Him. And so we're free. Free to live and find your contentment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Free to serve Him out of thankfulness for what He has provided. In the past, our desires were bound up with sin. They were fixed on things that could never fulfill, and they were trapped there. But now we're freed to pursue the greatest satisfaction this world can ever offer. Now that intense desire can be freely and fully focused on the only one who will fulfill it, our Lord Jesus Christ. But how far does this freedom extend? Can we pursue good things? Or must we live in poverty with only the poorest of things? Does pursuit of Christ mean that everything else that we own is bad? Do we need to live in guilt for wanting to upgrade our heater so that we can live in a warm house? Upgrade our vehicle because our old one is close to the end of its life. Spend some time away on holidays in a cottage instead of a campground. Are material things and financial success never okay then? When we receive good things from God, we must remember to keep it in perspective. The perspective of the freedom that's been granted us in our Lord Jesus Christ. The teacher in Ecclesiastes, the teacher tells us, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is a gift of God. Do you see? It is good and fitting to find enjoyment in God's gifts. When we're given opportunities in this life, we're free to take them. And to recognize them as having come from God's hand. But we must never, ever, ever make them a goal in and of themselves. God wants us to enjoy the fruit of our labor. In as far as our blessings have been managed in a way that brings glory to Him. In our management of money. In our purchases. 
and pursuits. Christ must always be at the forefront. It is then that we will be able to find contentment in this world and contentment in Him. So, let us not return to bondage, setting our desires most intensely on things which will never fulfill our deepest needs and wants. Let us set our desires on Christ. Let us live in the awareness of our sin and temptation to set our desires elsewhere, yes, but instead of submitting to them, turn to seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness that can only be found in Christ. And for those who may find it difficult to believe that this is possible, to those who find it difficult to believe that this is possible, the Catechism gives one final word of encouragement. We can pray to God to find that strength by the grace of of the Holy Spirit. We read here, Second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. We can pray to God to find that strength by the grace of the Holy Spirit. More and more we can pray to be renewed to be people after God's own heart, people in His image, until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. And He will answer. He will answer. When we pray in a way that is pleasing to God, when we put Christ at the forefront and set our desires on Him, He will answer and He'll bless such a request. He will bless such a prayer. This is not some mere upgrade, some mere better gadget or toy. This isn't simply taking growth in a new direction. And this isn't settling either. This is new life. Never again do we need to say more, more, more. Because whatever our situation is, our cup runs over. We're filled to overflowing. And so through Christ, let us joyfully embrace the fulfillment of our deepest need and the riches of contentment beyond anything that this world can offer. Amen.